0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry.
1: Dan, good to see you. Glad you made it. Thanks, everybody. Sorry, it's a good late. Good evening, Brian. Well, good evening. Hi, Brian. Good to see you. Good to see y'all. Good to see you, Jim. Hi, Jim. Hi. I was worried about you because I, on my email, <laughs> I had you said you were trying to enter, and I wasn't seeing it here. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no you didn't do anything. I, <laughs> I'm just glad to see you this time. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> I'm glad to see myself in in the screen. <laughs>
1: <laughs> was apocalypticism something new for y'all?
2: Yeah, it was new for me.
3: It was different for me to see the distinction and grouping, really, of Wright's salvation historical approach with the Lutheran and uh, contractual, but uh, it was pretty plain. Once, you, once I read your material on that, I've always drawn a lot from N.T. Wright, but it made sense of some of the things you were saying. One of his more recent books is the uh, Gifford Lectures on natu- the Natural Theology. Uh, it's called History and Eschatology. N.T. Wright's argument in there is that Jesus is natural theology.
1: Oh. <laughs>
3: <Yeah>. <laughs> so he's a, part, he's a part of history, you know, and that fit perfectly with what you were saying about it, that it is a that non-apocalyptic sort of approach.
1: Yeah, and that's not to take away, at least you understand where he's coming from. It's not to take away from his scholarship, and, but he is, yeah. he is working a particular program. Mm-hmm. So that if, if you had to explain, maybe, Brian, to Jim and Janice. Contractual theology
3: sets up sin and salvation in terms of law-breaking and punishment. As Douglas Campbell says, it is as if salvation is offered to human beings first by means of law keeping, then we realize that we cannot really keep the law, then we can move on to plan B. I like that. That was helpful.
1: But if you had to narrate the story of the Apostle Paul under the two systems, I think this gets at it. That is, how do you tell the story of Paul? Let's Let's start with a contractual theology. It wouldn't
3: float. I think it breaks down there quickly. Hey. Because he he actually did
1: keep the law, therefore should have been a shoe in. <laughs> I you know I know that the Bible says that, and we all are aware of those passages. But I I think that contractual theology has a, such a heavy weight a gravity that the way that you will hear this, like on the road to Damascus. What was it that Paul experienced? Well, in a contractual theology, you know, they'd say, well, Paul had been plagued by a guilty conscience, and that there he meant the one who could ease his, you know, here's the one who can resolve my problem with the law. So that would be a kind of the typical way of a contractual. In other words, we we mistell the story of Paul, And then we we assume that that's the way that conversion works. We assume that people are plagued by a guilty conscience, and then when they meet Jesus, oh, here's the answer to my guilt problem. You know, I spent 20 years in Japan. I don't know if I ever encountered anybody with a guilty conscience. (laughs) (laughs) In other words, guilt is not really a concept that Japanese have. We we have it here that, and and of course, then we project that onto Paul we projected on to what the law was supposed to do. Campbell does a nice job of this. Actually, I did a couple of interviews with Campbell and I said, you know, really the part of your book that I thought was quite ingenious is your whole description of plan A, plan B system. And he said, well, actually that's not my stuff. He said that comes right from Thomas Torrance. Mm-hmm. Campbell has spent a lot of time with the Torrances, and Thomas, of course, the father was the one who translated Karl Barth into English. And so, in some ways, this kind of overlaps with a a Barthian understanding. What you're getting in a contractual understanding, and this just goes all the way through, you know, you described it very well, Brian, there uh, with N.T. Wright, that you're kind of building upon an already given natural theology. You're building on the presumption that the salvation in some way is a in conjunction with or a completion of the law. So that epistemology, I did that little thing in the chapter that I went through the areas that this is going to impact. And of course, one of the areas is epistemology. That is the area of knowing that how do we know in an apocalyptic understanding the, the revealing and the revelation are in Christ. He is the revelation, and he's what's revealed. You know, some people accuse Bart of a kind of ghetto mentality, but I, I think rightly understood, it's not that. It's that here is the way that you read history. We're still going to do the Old Testament. We're going to still read Genesis. But are you going to understand Genesis or even creation? apart, and this was kind of my point with creation ex nihilo, I think that we really come to understand that creation ex nihilo comes to be clearly understood only in conjunction with resurrection. And this is what Paul does. He compares the resurrection of Christ with creation ex nihilo. I think that we can spend a lot of time spelling out the difference between contractual theology and apocalyptic theology. Well, let's do one more thing here before we move on. And that is, what in the, in the two systems, what does the problem and solution look like?
4: Well, in contractuals, someone has to keep the law. And so, presumably, Jesus was the only one who could actually come fully keep the law sinlessly, and so that contract has been kept for us by him and then i don't know you then add on the the whole punishment for sin i don't know exactly how they tie that in but
1: yeah it actually doesn't work very well because he keeps the law but so then no you ones would need to be punished right <laughs> yeah so why would anybody well then it turns out that he doesn't do it for everybody because that's that immediately poses a problem if it's for all people well, then what about the people that are punished? So then they say, well, not, it's just for limited atonement. It's a limited atonement, which is just an abhorrent doctrine. And then you get predestination, you know, that those who are chosen are the ones who get to go to heaven. <laughs> and maybe you're chosen not, you know, when Jonathan Edwards was preaching, he was hard and heavy on Calvinism and predestination. And his own uncle decided he he had not been predestined to be saved, and he slid his throat. Right. John Calvin's uncle? No, no. Jonathan uh, Edwards. Jonathan, Jonathan Ed- Edwards' uncle. They, uh, many people began to have suicidal ideations. Right. Because they decided, oh, God hated him. The contractual theology really doesn't work at many levels. And a lot of the doctrines that we have are kind of trying to make sense of something that in the end doesn't make sense. You know, if you're going to say he, he died and he keeps the contract, well, then then he only does it for some. So we get that. And kind of the whole thing is, well, that first plan of God didn't work. And so now here's plan B. But also every individual goes through plan A, plan B. Oh, I try to keep the law and I can't keep it. And then I meet Jesus and I realize, oh, now now my problem is solved. What it requires is kind of interesting in terms of mental capacity, because you have to be mentally aware enough that you can't keep the law that you're a sinner. That is, you have that recognition. No one can have the capacity to actually do this thing. That there is both capacity, you know, mainly it's, there, there's a heavy capacity part to Strangely enough, uh, in Calvinism, and then there's a heavy incapacity part. So, you know, just enough to know you're damned, which is a real sad place. It's like,
2: oh, I got in to see the show, but my tickets, a fake ticket.
1: Yeah, I I, I can just see far enough to know I'm in big trouble and I can't do anything about it. Okay, I'm going to jump
2: ahead a little bit to page 25 in your writing. I'm just going to read it. See, the section is about the Logos. This, in turn, lends a profound significance to our interaction with the Word through our participation in this story, our continuation of the Incarnation as the body of Christ, the specific connections and connectedness we develop in the body of Christ, our participation in who God is, giving our communion, our relationship, our interconnectedness, and enduring eternal significance. That really popped out to me, and I put a couple question marks. I understood it like word for word, as you know, as, as a group, as a paragraph. I'd like to hear like someone spin this out or unfold it, or just uh, do some reflection on that.
1: Well, it's good that David has shown up at the time he did. So, what? Yeah, what would be the that when we talk about the cosmic Christ, what would be the two ways of understanding that? Cosmic, I, I think, has to do with the
5: breaking into all of not just all of humanity of sort, but into the universe. And in other words, the cross is not just simply my personal sins, but something about Christ coming into the world has cosmic impact. Is that it my does? Question? But
1: but the question here is in college, and I don't know that I'd ever heard any other alternative when we talked about the logos in John one one. It was always sort of presumed that we were talking about a pre-existent word and that in some way we could describe this pre-existent word. And of course, I think that's precisely what John is not doing, because what you would do with a pre-existent logos is the same thing the Greeks would do. You would reduce who Christ is in a pre-existent understanding to some eternal truth, some transcendent reason you know, that you could almost do with the preexistent Christ what the Platonists do with the forms. Oh, that what we're actually aiming at is some form of divine reason. All of this ties into a kind of affirmation of natural theology, of the kind of thing, Brian, you're describing N.T. Wright is doing. You know, he's saying that Christ is a con- on a continuum with historical and natural theology. He's just the kind of the end point of that once you posit the pre-existent christ and that's the main thing you can kind of fill in the blank the logos can just mean logic reason eternal truth but what i am describing in that paragraph if i remember right is to go back and this is i actually first encountered this in john bear who is an eastern orthodox theologian and just has a breadth of knowledge you know he just sort of has read all of the patristic fathers and he said i've never encountered in the patristic fathers the notion that the logos is the pre-existent christ they had no such concept that is when you say logos you say word what do you think of oh the gospel what's the gospel oh that's the story about jesus So when you're talking about in the beginning was the word, we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about Jesus is the Christ. This may make your head hurt a little bit. You know, we tend to think in a kind of linear fashion, and I think this is another difference between contractual theology and and an uh, uh, apocalyptic understanding. And so the early patristics, even when they talk about the Incarnation, You know where they think of the Incarnation beginning? They picture it unfolding backward in time from the cross. They're picturing Christ when we say the center of history. Actually, everything unfolds from the middle of things. Mm. It's not some unknown preexistent logos that John is talking about or that we're talking about with the cosmic Christ. It's the person Jesus, and so we have to hold together Jesus Christ. And I did a little bit, you know, this is Richard Rohr, who's quite popular today. He's a Franciscan theologian, and what, and what he's saying is, he's saying we need to get rid of Jesus and focus on Christ. And this is what he means, that the historical Jesus is kind of a standing in the way of our entry into this univocal, singular experience of God that we have access to in university of being. If you had to trace what emptied the world, disenchanted it, what the radical orthodox guys would say, they would say it was the Franciscans and precisely this doctrine. So it's kind of strange that people are turning to Richard Rohr, who claims to be re-enchanting the world. It's an undoing, I think. It's a Gnostic, a kind of Gnostic-like form of Christianity in which you would separate the humanity and the deity of Christ. And so that's the idea here, that when, we, when John is talking about the Logos, or we're talking about the cosmic Christ, Christ breaking in, how does he do that? He does that in who he is in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. It's a historical, that is that from this point in time, there is an opening up, a breaking in. It's apocalyptic, and so the cosmic Christ is connected to the person work of Jesus.
5: Maybe we get this picture for eternity before the world was created. There was the Father, Son, Spirit talking and communicating and having a good old time, and then you know, hey, let's create. And Jesus, before that time is ready to break, now going to break in. Did I read right that somewhere? you were
1: saying that that's maybe a wrong
5: picture of Jesus?
1: Yeah, I'm just saying the, the, we know who God is. We know who Christ is through the person work of Jesus of Nazareth. You know, what was God doing before he created the world? Well, there's a problem with that question in that we picture creation in a linear timeline. And of course, if you just think a minute, you're, you know, was there an eternity of time? Before the creation? Well, if there was an eternity of time before the creation, the creation would have never happened because it ain't finished yet. Oh, well, maybe it's just a half an eternity. Well, no, that doesn't help either. In other words, the way that we tend to think of eternity is a long time, but that is inherently contradictory. So, what this is calling us to do is to reconceive our understanding of how time and eternity intersect in the person of Christ. Even the word ex nihilo can become problematic. Oh, you mean like there's nothing there that kind of resided outside of God before he got busy creating. And so he took a bundle of nothing and he kind of shaped it. In other words, that's nonsense. I hope you understand. And I'm not saying we can conceive of this. I'm just saying that there are certain ways of conceiving of this that we shouldn't that our tendency is to think in a linear fashion, in a kind of Greek notion of time. One of the things, and this is, I think, the last thing I did in the chapter, was say we need to reconceive of time, that it, in a Hebraic sense, there is this kind of event-oriented time. What's the defining event? Well, it's the it's Jesus that is the defining event. That, ex- that is the unfolding of, first of all, of what creation means and what the Old Testament means. But it's also then that we project eschatologically, too, so that there is a kind of unity in time and eternity.
4: I really liked your suggestion that Jesus was always the, the point of creation. Jesus was always going to come. And so the, the question in my mind is, how then does one explain to yourself and to others, then where did sin come from? And how is that not pointing to a plan A, plan B scenario? Because, I mean, it does to me, that sounds kind of silly. The plan A, plan B is if, oops, God didn't mean for that to happen. Now what am I going to do? That just, right. it just doesn't fit with my view of God.
1: Yeah, yours is the big question. So let me sidestep the question momentarily and come back That's fine. To- In the Eastern Orthodox understanding, this is you know, this when you or back to the early church fathers, the thing that has been preserved is that creation is being completed in Christ. So we often picture it, oh, there's the six days and then God rested. But actually, even that story where you read, well, wait a minute, Christ is doing something strange with the Sabbath. He said, I'm I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. The writer of Hebrews says we can enter into the Sabbath day. That is, the, the creation is being completed, the pleroma, the unfolding, the thing that began in Genesis, the is still unfolding in Christ. And that's actually the picture in John when he talks about in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. He's picturing the creation event as recreation commenced with Christ or creation completed. And that is actually in the first chapter of John. He goes through, There's you start counting up the days and the events. He's playing with the creation story. Hmm. There's seven days and concluding in the cleansing of the temple. And now the Lord has come to his temple. That's the significance of Jesus entering into the temple. John is is using a lot of imagery throughout the book. You know, if you read John in just kind of a flat literal way, you're not going to get the book. And of course, this is John is the way the favorite book of people like Origen and others. They're going to read what we call allegorically, but maybe they're just reading theologically. This was one of my classes that people would get offended. You know, you just, it's just there that in John, in the beginning, you know, was the word he's using language of my, in my father's house, there are many rooms. Where is that house? Is Jesus up doing carpentry work in the heavens? Or is he preparing a place? In other words, the idea of the house is the dwelling place of God is in his people. Those people are being prepared. Now the kingdom of God is among you. That's the first thing is we need to kind of get rid of this notion that they're kind of sequence of events. Whoops, those people fell. Certainly the fall is there. And your question is a the big question in this chapter, Genesis. It's the proper question. And that is, what's that snake doing in the garden? Among the early church fathers, there's the idea of the serpent being controlled by spiritual powers. And there's the idea of fallen angels. And this seems to be the the picture of Paul talking about the principalities and powers. There are kind of these intermediating spirits that are in control. And of course, we know that even that Christ's confrontation with Satan, that he's pictured as the prince of this world. So that when we're talking apocalyptic, that for some, like Schweitzer and Reed, the early, early apocalyptic theologians, this is what they're going back to that there is this kind of demonic or satanic spiritual control. I don't know the degree to which they might have believed this. And so part of what I'm trying to do in the chapter is link that understanding to an apocalyptic understanding. It's not simply a demonic thing, but it's connected with sin's deception. You know, what is it that those spiritual powers do? They enslave to death. How do they enslave to death? through the deception of the original, you know, the serpent, but also the deception is an ongoing deception. And that is thematic in scripture. I'm not exactly answering your question. Your question, yeah, but what's that snake doing in the garden?
4: Especially since Calvinism will say, okay, that was God's whole idea. He needed sin. He needed evil so that he could display his mercy, wrath, grace. You know, he needed an excuse to get Jesus up there on that cross I just, I want another explanation than that because I don't buy that.
1: And that's what you're going to get in Calvinism. You're going to get it, that they're all going to come up with a reason for evil. Oh, God needed evil, you know, as a kind of uh, soul-making theodicy or part of a free will choice. You got to have, they they get to choose. I think all of those are inadequate. In the end, I don't have an explanation other than to say, I do believe that, What we're up against is of a cosmic proportion. What do I mean by that? Part of the redefining, the anthropological redefining that we're doing, is we have to look again at what a human being is. We kind of have this sense of a human being as an individual. I think that's already mistaken. Human beings are constituted as human beings corporately. And, of course, that failure of being human gives rise then to a kind of alienated individualism. What we are meant to be is a corporate body functioning together through one another. And I think the same thing is true about creation. That is that it's not simply that we are to be a unified people, but there was originally, I think, a unity with creation. Creation itself is, is affected by human failure. So that those who were the to carry out the care, you know, dominion mandate often gets misinterpreted. Oh, we were in control and we can use this as a resource. No, I think that the the care for creation was turned over to humans. When the caretakers failed, there's the sense that that impacted the world itself. You know, you don't have, you don't have to be very mystical to get the oh yeah that things went bad. Because people went bad, and the earth is polluted, the world is filled with violence of every kind against people and against nature. But I also think that there's a spiritual dimension to this. I'll have to admit, I'm a bit vague on how this functions. I like the way that Walter Wink pictures this, you know, that we've all been in a corporate group of people that have gone bad. And so this is a little lecture I did on that it's systemic. Is there a big difference between a corporate evil and a demonic evil? I wouldn't know how to distinguish those two things.
3: You know, I thought of it while I was reading your material that is by analogy, at least it's sort of like the devil was a uh, instead of a clockmaker, a watchmaker, deist, God, <laughs> the devil was like a, a one time saboteur and everything else is unfolding from the lie the one lie. And and it's not like he had to do a whole lot else. The the nature and the system took over is one way to think about it, but I certainly see them as a unity Uh, and maybe it's both. And doesn't matter, you know, you can emphasize one or the other and talk about it. But at the end of the day, the lie is important and the nature of the systemic problem best. We know it, it was introduced by the snake, but, doesn't answer Janice's question. Things ain't right. We, we know that, right? Yeah. Well, one of the things that comes through for me and I'll, with this whole course is it seems like it's a theme. The word charismatic gets it. You brought it up one time at least, but it's the one event that Christ reveals the nature of the problem at the same time Christ reveals the, the solution. And it's one revelation, and, and that works against, or at least is in contrast to the plan A, plan B, two-step. I find that repeating itself in a lot of just the feel as I read it, and I'm not able to talk about it completely, but it does come back again and again, that there's a unity to this view. Part of me just wants to say it's beautiful and and seems true, resonates, but it also simplifies, sort of like Occam's razor (laughs) wants to, must be true.
1: Well, that was kind of my goal is, say, in apocalyptic theology, I'm trying to draw together the idea, you know, is it law? Is it demonic? Is it, what is it? And I'm saying, yes. And the way to do that is in and through. A deception or a lie Mm -hmm. and say that that does give coherence and then that makes sense out of the truth it makes sense out of revelation you know that's the other key thing here in an apocalyptic theology revelation is a necessity why? Because, you know, there is this sense of a darkness, of a cosmic, a world constituted in the darkness. That's the picture of John. And the light has broken into the darkness. I don't think we can get our feet. Uh, And that was sort of my picture with capitalism. I changed the word. I noticed in the chapter, I I went back and forth, is the world disenchanted or misenchanted? McCumber's book on capitalism, he's saying it's a misenchantment. And I kind of like that. That is that money does almost everything that spirits used to do, that we think of money as this vivifying, you know, that's what brings things to life. But of course, in another sense, we can step back and say, yeah, but we all recognize that it's just money, that it's just (laughs) a piece of paper. And so we know it, this is Zizek, and we do it anyway. We know it ain't true, but we do it anyway. We're caught up in the thing. Yeah, your question. I was actually Janice trying to read up on. I went back to Origin, and he just lays it out. You know, he goes through he goes through the Old Testament and the New Testament, and he shows how spirits and evil spirits and the devil and demons and uh, fallen angels and there is certainly that role that is played in the Old Testament. You know, when we talk about the principalities and powers. I think that they certainly had the idea, you know, this was an Old Testament idea that you could just name the God of the Egyptians, and that was synonymous with the the culture of the Egyptians, that the religion and the people, the God and the people are identified. And so however you want to take that, if you want to take it, you know, that certainly fits with Walter Wink's picture, that there is a kind of shaping spirit. Is it actually a spirit, or is it just this kind of corporate failure that we enter into, I tend to go back and forth. But we know that people are evil. We know that right today. A megalomaniac who wants to be in absolute control is willing to kill off hundreds of people and displace millions of people. But that's not unusual in the history of the world. That's just that's normal for evil people. That's the idea behind an apocalyptic understanding what would be candidates for the nature of cosmic bondage. What has us in bondage? Desire to escape death, right, or no? That's what I would say. Death denial, death drive. Is that satanic? That's the way it's portrayed biblically, that that is the lie of the serpent, not just in Genesis, but also in Isaiah and other places that a covenant with death. And that explains kind of the survival of the fittest, Mode that we're in. Yeah, I think that's it. The article by William Frazier, he lays it out very nicely. He does everything, but go to Genesis. That's basically what he's saying. He's saying there's death denial, that that's what's undone in Abraham and fulfilled in Christ. I use the example of money. Can you think of other examples? We've said cosmic bondage through fear of death. I use the one of Capitalism, but could you provide your own illustration of other forms that cosmic bondage might take?
2: After the Enlightenment, dependence on scientific method and reasoning, reasoning, it's been purported that you know superstition is completely historical, washed away with science. You you uh, described it in more detail as uh, science has its uh, priests, so-called priests. You could draw parallels with, between science and, a, and religion. That's one thought I had.
1: Yeah, a kind of scientism. And the science is, you know, this is, I, Newtonian science is the neat illustration of this. Because Newton is positing these absolute laws. And nothing, even God, can't break these laws. And so when God creates, he inserts the world into time and space. And out of a Newtonian world, we get deism. That unfolds, I think, into secularism and atheism yeah. so that it's the same problem in a sense, but now the misenchantment or disenchantment, it just becomes a flat legal thing. Yeah, Maybe this
2: ties in or maybe it doesn't. I'm, I'm taking a class in uh, autism, someone that helps shape behavior for autis- autistic children, and there's different ways to you assess what they choose, say so, so you lay out five or six items, and they pick one item over others that might be a key to, like if you give them a, an incentive, like during a 10-minute session. We're just three or four weeks into the class, but question comes up in my mind is, do we assume we can measure, I mean, everything that we can imagine exists? And and so I see this unfolding of measurement, working with autistic kids. Everything can be reduced to data, and we use that data to form decisions. I just feel a question mark coming up in my mind, you know, just if we have enough information, we can, I don't want to use the word control, but shape behaviors. And then a parallel thought is what we all have heard or read about social media doing to our, you know, we part of this matrix we're swimming in the matrix. We'll never admit it, at
1: least. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Who wrote The Manufacturing of Consent? I know Chomsky refers to it, but I don't think he coined the phrase. Yeah, that we're inundated with information, so much so that information has displaced. You know, And that was Alan Bloom's case years ago. He said, oh, we've displaced understanding with information in our educational institution. So you don't go to university now to, to study the humanities or, you know, you go to get a computer science degree.
4: Right. And so all people are treated like Pavlov's dogs. You just need to figure out what steps to take and then you can figure out how to control people. And I, I do believe that that sort of research and that sort of manipulation has been going on for a really, really long time by people who serve the principalities that we don't want to serve.
1: And I think we're all aware of it at this point in time. It's not that this hasn't been in place for decades, but now there's a kind of split because, oh, wait a minute, we've got two sources. You know, we've got CNN and we've got Fox News. Are people being brainwashed in different directions? At least we're aware now this thing is pervasive and insidious. Is there another way of illustrating how the cosmic bondage may in fact be playing out?
3: What about ontotheology? Because that's what I feel like I'm up against. I mean, I kind of link all of that with law. You can go round and round with it. It is law. It's the principalities and it's the order of things. And just the question of how that bondage can be
1: illustrated by even engaging theology. Yeah, theology has got to be the biggie. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Of the forms of cosmic bondage.
4: Religionism is what I call religion.
1: This is the biggie. That this is the one that we probably all may, we can probably have felt ourselves captured by this thing. And onto theology is it's just that, that it's a law based rational. You can lay it out metaphysically, it's irrefutable. It's an absolute knowledge. Descartes says you really don't even need, you know, there's still room for faith in some ways. His point with, you know, the cogito, God is not subject to doubt even. That has been with us for some time, yeah. It's
3: foundationalism.
1: Foundationalism, yeah. And, of course, the foundation isn't Christ. And I think that gets Mm -hmm. because what we mean apocalyptically and epistemologically is, no, we really mean we begin and end with Christ. He is the Alpha and Omega, that our knowing and our understanding do not incorporate Christ, but they unfold. And I think that may be the key one here in an apocalyptic understanding, that you really can't begin elsewhere. How does resurrection address the issue? Resurrection, I think, takes us to an apocalyptic, but how does resurrection address the issue of cosmic bondage? The problem of cosmic bondage is, is that it brings death to everything, the cosmos, humanity, the resurrection then swallows up death. You could just add on to that, you know, that, that that's it, but that in some way finitude, an imminent frame in the words of Charles Taylor, you know the idol is kind of that that's the idea of an imminent frame. That is you absolutize, make infinite something that is finite. You make absolute something that is contingent. You make nothing something. I think that is kind of the key. And so what's happening in resurrection? The imminent frame, the death denial system, that no longer it no longer binds us epistemologically morally. That is the sense that resurrection opens that up. It breaks that open. And I think that is a psychological, epistemological, religious. I think that just goes all the way through.
3: I was going to relay uh, one of my favorite pictures uh, theologically that's this unity. is. I think it sums up the apocalyptic really well. Is Rowan Williams, I read him say before that the church is Nothing other than the people standing around looking into the crater that was made by the resurrection, scratching their heads and wondering what just happened. So the resurrection is that the single apocalyptic event. It's like time uh, rolls from there.
1: Yes, Um, yes.
3: um, Specifically in the incarnation that that event is the crater. I mean, it's the meteor.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
3: This meteor that hit, that that the implications of which uh, we're still are unfolding, and so it's the shorthand. I think you said for apocalyptic faith, the kind of faith and and vision that that comes, and it, it was a gradual process, even for the the disciples on Easter morning and following to know it, to know. That just did not add up to the world order that they were used to, and it didn't even add up to their vision of what Jesus's ministry was. And certainly they were kind of stuck in that mode of despair, like Jesus was cursed. Jesus is cursed, or Jesus is Lord. For that time, they were, well, he died. And then even when he was Resurrected and showing himself to them, they couldn't recognize him because this is the epistemology. It does all kind of come back to the radical nature and apocalyptic nature of the knowledge that Christ is risen. Uh, it sums up the apocalyptic theology.
5: Yeah, and this this is kind of where um, my Calvinist friends, the resurrection is is just kind of a footnote because everything revolves around that cross. You almost don't need the resurrection, except that. Well, yeah, there will be a resurrection, but ultimately, I, I I see that they really don't need a resurrection because everything they've got to say is
1: at at the cross. Yeah, just quoting Calvin, he says as much that all of salvation is there in the cross. He does. It's not that he doesn't do stuff with the resurrection, but he uh, it, it is as kind of an addendum.
5: Spurgeon's gospel is simply just the cross. Matter of fact, he says it. It's, well, he says it's the cross. It's ultimately Calvinism. All five points of Calvinism. That's that's the good news for him. You know, where does resurrection play? Isn't that the life? Isn't that where it's all swallowed up? And well, he he's assuming that. And I said, no, he's not assuming that. He's <laughs> he's stopping at the cross.
4: Yeah. <laughs>
5: so.
1: And of course, it, it you can do all that because you're working in legal theory. Uh, the cross is just it meets all the legal requirements, and it it has nothing to do with death with the human predicament with the lived reality of the situation that we're in, and maybe that's the sad thing about all this. I think that Christianity really does address our suffering and our the predicament that we face, and people make it a non sequitur it doesn't follow they can get saved, but
4: it doesn't it doesn't really change anything, yeah. I mean, for me, when I was under Calvinism, I was I was kind of embarrassed because I was condemned for, for thinking this way. But I was like, I don't just want to be forgiven for my sin. I want to be done with it. I, I want this out of me. You <laughs> that's know? George
1: McDonald. That's exactly what he said. But
4: he said- they told me, no, you shouldn't even feel guilty for it. You know, Jesus paid for your <laughs> sin. You never think about it again. You should never feel guilty about it. I'm like, that's just not good enough for me. My heart no. breaks. That, that sin is a part of my life, that I hurt the people that I love, that I disappoint God, that I'm not what I ought to be. That's what I want. And that's to me, that's those are the glimpses that I got in scripture from since I was, you know, eight years old that God was offering me something more than just this blanket pardon.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's that you you sound like George McDonald. He said, Man, I'd rather not have. If that's all it is, I don't want it. Right. I want it, I want my sin taken away. <laughs> how is it that we can undo our captivity to what I think is the reigning understanding through resurrection? How does that ad- how does resurrection address dualism? A prevalent way of thinking
5: has to be the, sup- the the separation of the flesh from the spirit or the material, you know, from the good, and in this belief material is bad and spirit and even soul is good. And this sets up the dualism between good and bad. Yet the resurrection counters these false ideas because it does not uh, see this duality. Certainly, the flesh can be corrupted, but the whole purpose of the resurrection is not to separate us from our bodies, but to restore our bodies.
1: You know, this is actually, this is just Hegel, but I think Hegel's is doing Genesis. And that is, he's saying that in a Kantian understanding, you've got the Newman and the phenomena, and then there's their, their antinomies and they're You know, you can't explain them, and Hegel comes along and says, yeah. And that's the way that human knowledge functions. There's always these opposed pairs. There's the thesis, the antithesis, and what we get is the synthesis. Uh, I think that Hegel's right. And, of course, this is the postmodern recognition. This is Derrida, you know, identity through difference. It's always that we're going to do the rationale. Reason always works through uh, some sort of opposed pairs a binary. I mean, that's the way language works, but language as an end in itself needs to be a dualism. That's what I see John doing. He does talk about light and darkness, but the light overcomes the darkness. He does talk about life and death, but life defeats death. In in other words, there are these opposed pairs, but in the New Testament, the one is undone. This is Paul's point was Jew, Gentile, slave free. This is his picture in Galatians, when he's talking about in Galatians and Ephesians the undoing of the cosmic principle, he is specifically referring to a pagan understanding in which things were always thought to work through opposed pairs. That's the way the pagans thought. That's the way Eastern thought still works today. You need the yin and the Yang. you need you need the both. you need the opposed pairs wabi and sabi. you need you know you need the two things the, over and against one another and resurrection undoes that. In other words, it just defeats that closed, imminent, by-your-bootstraps rationalism. It undoes that, and I see that as what is being portrayed. And this is, again, why we can't talk about an epistemology that would incorporate Christ. Christ is an understanding, a knowing, that is going to overtake. You know, this is the defeat of, literally, the defeat of the principle and the power, uh, I think we're just subject to that. That's just the way we are. And Paul describes this as if that's the way human personality functions. We often think, oh, man, if I could just get rid of this, you know, I I, I have this struggle within, I'm self-condemning, I've got this terrible complex. And of course, Slavoj Zizek comes along and says, you don't want to get rid of that, because that's what you are. If you get rid of the human struggle, you're not human anymore. The Christian answer is no, you can get rid of that. You don't have to be engaged in that agonistic struggle. But I do think it's true that outside of the resolution that we have in Christ, that is what we have that's a frame of knowing, that's a psychology, that's the way the world functions is through these oppositional identity through difference.
4: But the answer is not in Hegel's synthesis. The answer is in the good overcoming the evil.
1: Yeah, yeah. The idea thesis, antithesis, synthesis is not really out of Hegel, though that's a neat summary. And of course, what Hegel is picturing is the synthesis is the spirit. Zizek's point he doesn't really believe in synthesis. He doesn't believe in God. And of course, in from a Lacanian, Zizekian point of view, just accept the struggle, accept the suffering, uh, accept the unquenched desire, because that's what makes you human.
3: But that's Kierkegaard's phrase where the, the unity comes from God. For the constituted uh, self uh, as the agonistic struggle is restored to unity by God himself coming. And that's why their resurrection is is the answer to dualism. I'm wondering if we could have illustrated cosmic bondage by talking about that dualism.
1: Yes. that that
3: Dualism is the bondage that are split between the the ego, uh, the self and the ego. Other, it is that causes the original, I mean, it's the source of the Gnostic dualism. It's the source of, uh, Cartesian dualism. It's the source of the one that Zizek and company sort of live with and used Paul's description in Romans seven to say, yeah, that's, that's the human experience. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Get over it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's kind of the heart of it, is, as far as I can conceive of right now, is, the, is this, that split. is like You said on page 13, is the question, is it the influence of Greek philosophy? Is it New Ageism and Eastern influences? Or is it simply the natural human tendency, dualism? Is it the natural human tendency? And, and I think probably because of the bondage, the experience of bondage, and we lack language for it. Um, unless you're really versed in Freud. And that's what that's one of the most exciting parts of this whole deal for me is, is recognizing just how to say very simply what our bondage is. And therefore, at the same time, the, the answer is new life in Christ and participation in God's, God's life.
1: Yeah, and that's, that's what I'm doing with the psychoanalytic stuff. You can do this philosophically, and there's the dualism. And the psychoanalytic stuff just makes it personal oh, this is definitive of what human personality is doing.
3: We barely get close to theosis, and here comes Matt.
1: Matt is here to save the day.
4: (laughs) Is human tendency really just the deception of Satan? I mean, whenever I see people say, oh, that's just the human tendency, I don't know, that kind of goes back to the, oh, sin is innate, it's something that's in, in you, whereas to me it's like, That's a result of our deception. Because we are deceived, we presume that we must do this and that and this and that.
1: I'm glad Matt's here because I think Matt's sensibility. Matt's more spiritual than I am. (laughs) But this is actually an Eastern Orthodox understanding also. And that is the, instead of original sin, what do you call it in Eastern Orthodoxy, Matt? You're saying
5: we have something other than that, but yeah, we don't have original sin. Right,
1: so what is the word? Uh, Incubicence. That, that one, we're just kind of all born into families and cultures and peoples. And, you know, this is very Girardian, which is the next chapter, that desire is mimetic. It's imitated. Right. And I think we do imitate. It's nearly irresistible. We imitate, you know, what's valuable. What's valuable is what people desire. We want what other people want and their wanting it makes it desirable for us so desire is a learned activity and of course Gerard himself is going to talk about Gerard I don't think believes literally in the satan but he's going to depict it he's going to depict this as again is it spiritual i boy if there is the spiritual we must be touching upon it evil spirits here of this kind of corporate delusion this drive Toward drive toward nothingness, you know that just is is all consuming. But yeah, it's obviously not simply an inherited guilt, but it's a corporate failedness, and then to a corporate redemption. That I see, that's the body of Christ. That we're we're failed corporately, and we're redeemed corporately. And of course, when we talk about being failed corporately, uh, the idea is that that is an alienating. Process That is an undoing of of who and what we are. The corporate redemption is a unifying process. It brings us together. Two people fighting the same enemy are brought together momentarily. And that's actually what Gerard's going to talk about. You know, the scapegoating mechanism, that's what unifies people, is what they are all against. But you understand that's a very fragile way for a culture to hold together. Because if the scapegoat fails as a kind of sacred object, then the culture falls apart. Then you need another scapegoat. How does anarchism address the cosmic problem? And maybe you don't like my word here.
4: I'm an anarchist. Okay.
2: (laughs) It's a deliberate confronting of counterfeit authority in any form. That it's unmasked, organized violence, labeling people in groups, false narratives that appeal to ego, and manipulating people's thoughts or stories that reduce their ability to perceive deception.
1: Yeah. It's anti-arche. It's against, I just see that's what Paul's saying. We're we're over and against the arche, the principles of the world, the power, principles, and power. I'm just anti-institutional enough that I think that any arche, any power, any principle in this world is always going to function this way. And as Christians, we can't allow ourselves to be defined by the powers. That's precisely what nationalism, but also institutionalism of any kind, I think, it would do. Tribalism, racism, whatever, you know, sexism, they're all going to create a system in and through which we can cling to a principle or power. And of course, what inevitably happens is that that it it consumes life. It it it's a false reality. To me, this is what Paul is fighting in Corinth. He's fighting the false. You know, there's people who are presenting themselves as the true apostles, the super apostles. He says. And the super apostles are coming in and literally, I think, slapping people around. And Paul says, you seem to enjoy this. You know, you seem to like this. That You say, I'm weak. You know, these guys are really tough. That's exactly what the first church is up against. And that's always what the church is up against. This is what Origen is up against. This is why they condemn him. You know, the church is going to turn on him. The very bishops that he's dealing with. It's just there. I I don't know how to get around it other than to say, as Christians, we just have to step outside of the city. We have to move out of the principalities and powers. And I'm not saying there aren't any number of ways to nuance that or do that or to negotiate that. I just think we've got to be able to name this thing and say, okay, here's the powers. These are corrupting. This is what they'll do. They'll be deformative and definitive. That's C.S. Lewis, by the way. C.S. Lewis does a beautiful job in that hideous strength when he describes the little college that is taken over by the vat, the brain in the vat. And if you've ever been in a little institution that is gone bad, you know, people are striving to, to attain what is just hideous. <laughs> That's why it's called that hideous strength, that the power over other people, I think is the great lure that we continually. And I, to me, that's what anarchism is it's anti archae against the principles of powers, as opposed to chronos, which is Greek time. But of course, we're inundated with chronos. I, I think the mechanical clock is almost a byproduct of a thought that came before the mechanical clock. Chronos is that kind of thing that just beats itself out. You know, the picture is the, the Kronos, you can't grab a hold of it. It's always just, it, the, it's a young man with the ponytail, and you can never grab the ponytail. It is a, a ever-elusive, ever-fading unfolding of time. It is almost the equation, I, I see it, as death. In other words, chronos is just a kind of chronological unfolding, sequential unfolding, And the the time is the dominant force, whereas kairos is just a meaning-filled event. Kairos is, you know, that's the Hebrew kind of understanding, but I think that's the idea of the time of redemption, uh, the Sabbath time, the Hebrew writer introduces, that now is the, the day of redemption. Now you can enter into the eternal rest. I am simple-minded enough to just think that we can literally experience, have a different experience of reality. I think that time is a prime part of our experiential reality, and I think what the New Testament is describing to us is an alternative experience, that Kairos, unfolding meaningful events, that unfold, you know, this is the way we're reading Christ, that that's not an event that ended but it's unfolding. It's not an event that slips away, but it's still expanding. We can pass from one experience to the other.
2: Yeah. Can you come up with any examples or moving from Kronos to Kairos?
1: Do you know Sapir-Whorf hypothesis? Benjamin Worf was a Christian, but he, was a, he studied with Ed- Edward Sapir, and he went and studied the Hopi Indians. And he claimed that the Hopi Indians, in fact, had no notion of an event happening simultaneously in a distant place. Mm. What he's describing, in the end, he's saying that a Einsteinian notion of the relativity of time is, in fact, closer to, and I think this is what we're getting at in Hebraic time. Development of the modern clock, I think, is just kind of a, re- a literal reification of chronos. A Brief History in Time is a beautiful book, as I'm saying this, it's the history of the clock. Are you kind of vaguely familiar with the history? You know, in the beginning in Europe, the clock towers would have been in the church. They would have adjusted, you know, if you go to one village, the time you'd have to adjust and the time. And, and they're actually setting the clocks according to sundials. And then there is a race that, lit, a literal competition. Between in England, uh, several countries participated in this because they could not navigate in a ship longitude and latitude apart from a timepiece that would keep time on board a ship. You, you know, they had weighted clocks that wouldn't do that. And so they developed the mechanical clock f- further and developed, you know, you understand that the 60 second minute and the 60 minute hour. And the equal hour; those are all a fairly recent event invention. That is, that I think that mechanical time is a concept of time that produced the clock, not the other way around. But now we're all inundated with this understanding of chronos. And by the way, in England, the committee they had—that can you picture who might have sat on the committee? That awarded the prize to the guy who developed the mechanical clock that would work on board of you know the, uh, uh, a ship. Isaac Newton.
4: Newton. That's yeah. what I was
1: going to say. Oh, I should have given you a chance. Yeah. Yeah. Isaac Newton was one of the the judges, and so literally they hand out a prize. I and I think that just that defines you know for for Newton that chron- chrono sort of time, that mechanical time, that that absolute time. And unfolding that defines his science, but I think that has come to define people's lives. It's a characteristic understanding that's there. It was a Greek idea that you know has developed, but I think that there has always been this other alternative kind of experiential understanding that was there in a Hebraic picture. And so that's what I'm trying to get at, you know, in the Sabbath day of rest, the idea of we read history not from beginning, you know, not sequentially, not as in consecutive order, but we actually read it from the middle. And that's the picture then of we actually, this is Christian hope, that hope is we change up the past because of a future that is coming our direction. The Christian experience of time is partly what we're talking about, in an apocalyptic theology.
4: So isn't time as we know it now, the chronological time, sort of an industrial mechanistic necessity? I mean, for me, I told you I was an anarchist. I've always resisted chronological time and being a, a an at home homeschooling mother, I've had a little bit of the luxury of doing that. But for me, it's like before the industrial revolution, people had the freedom, I mean, obviously, you'd have to get up and milk your cows, you know, they, they, there was a pretty, there was some degree of structure, but it was more in tune with the creation. Absolutely. When the sun comes up, that's when you get up. When the sun goes down, that's when you go to bed. But nobody was telling you, at 5.02, you need to be here. And at 2.07, you need to do this. I mean, it's to me, that's just very enslaving. Very constricting.
1: And everybody thought that. And when when we think of the Industrial Revolution, you know, we often think of the spinning jenny or the steam engine. But I think what gets left out of this is the story I've just told you, is that actually some of the first mass-produced items were clocks. And, of course, the people they're hiring to work in the clock factories, they're local farmers. How do you get a farmer to come to work at 8 in the morning? They would give them a prize if you if you make it to work at eight o'clock. We're going to give you a prize. Guess what the prize was? Clock. I'll <laughs> we'll give you a <laughs> clock. Uh, probably an alarm clock. So this is an intro. I find it fascinating that the way that the mechanics of time get mixed into the experience of time. I think that the industrial revolution the you know, the world that we live in is very much a byproduct of what what we're describing here. It is just consuming. It, it eats you up. And I think that's the picture in, in the New Testament of Sabbath rest.
5: Right.
2: Yeah. Uh, my son's wife is Hispanic. And whenever <laughs> there's a get together, they if they say, well, we're going to start the birthday party at 12, it might get started 2 p.m.,
1: yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's uh
2: that's the event oriented. And you never ask how long is it going to go, you know. It's just going to go till people
4: leave. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. The obvious idea here is we need to recognize that we're enfolded in a reality of kind of the order of the matrix. This is Morpheus describes, you know, when you go to church, when you wake up, when you Everything you do, you're in the matrix. That's precisely that that thing needs to be split open. And so the matrix may be capitalism. It may be nationalism. I think at, at the deepest level, it's our experience of things, that we literally experience things in and through the matrix, the values that have been thrust upon us by the principalities and powers that can define us and do define us apart from an apocalyptic understanding one point that
4: i would just want to bring up and i'm not sure if i can recall it properly but i just remember sort of kind of having a little uh revival type feeling here because like feeling like you were preaching it when you were talking about jesus was his whole point was coming to complete us i mean to me that just it was just it's just balm to my soul because that's that's just how my heart sees who God is, who Jesus is, what this is all about—it's not this. Oh, you're you're a sinner in the hand of an angry God. I'm gonna make you pay for all for you know dishonoring me or whatever. To me, that just never felt right. And I just the music of of seeing that God from the very beginning, it was all about love, and it's always been about bringing us to completion, to be all that he ever intended us to be. And I just, all the language of wrath and punishment, you know, what whatever kind of wrath there is, in my opinion, it's a, it's a wrath against the sin that's trying to keep us from becoming all that he intended us to be. It's not a wrath against us because we're not good enough or we made him angry or we didn't do what he wanted us to do. It just it's just seems very small and ugly.
1: I'm so glad you're in the class, Janice. That's what needed to be said. That beautiful thing that you just said, that's that's really what we're talking about. That this should just waken us up to the love and joy that we're surrounded by. And I'm afraid people are, are missing it. Yeah. That that is really the answer to all the questions. Instead of this trivial, pitiful, kind of ugly picture. That we were lit, literally enlivened by, and recognize, and are great grateful for uh, the the beautiful, joyous world that we're part of. All right, you guys are great. Hi. Good class.
0: Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship.